The content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com disclosures. So first of all, an official welcome to everybody. This is the, the future launch party. Um, my name's Doss. Um, I'm on the marketing team at A16Z, and I will kind of have the honor to like MC tonight and kind of guide through the different segments that we have. Um, for those of you who don't know or haven't heard yet, Future is the new site that we have put together uh, at A16Z, and it's for understanding the future, how tech shapes it, how we build it. It launched yesterday uh, with content from really amazing builders and just an awesome cohort. You can see that at future.a16z.com. And tonight for a launch party, we're going to feature sort of some snack size conversations around big themes from the different content that was part of that launch. Um, I am super excited because this is just like going to be an awesome group of founders, builders, other interesting people sharing their thoughts and being in conversation. So I'm going to give you guys just a quick rundown so you know what to expect. Uh, we've got kind of uh, a segment we'll talk about like the new creator economy uh, from the angles of like crypto, gaming, and education. Um, then we'll talk a little bit about bubbles, speculation, and innovation in the second part, uh, bio, and like when to subtract, when to add, and when to AI. And we'll have a kind of in about an hour or so, uh, the hybrid future of work as a segment. But to get us started tonight, I'm actually going to introduce three members of the A16Z team. You've heard some of them here uh, as we were getting started, um, who had a really big role in the launch. So we have A16Z's head of marketing, uh, Margaret, who normally hosts at this time the, the 4B show. Um, our editor-in-chief, Sonal, uh, who also showruns the A16Z podcast network, and uh, A16Z co-founder, Mark Andreessen, who wrote uh, a piece, Technology Saves the World, which appeared on the new site. So uh, I'm going to have you guys come off mute because I, I think while there were a lot of other people on the teams who were involved, we're going to start with you guys to kick off the, uh, the party. All right. Thank you, Daz. Um, I love you in this moderating spot. It's uh, it's awesome. So thank you. Um, all right. I'll start with both you, um, Sonal and Mark. Um, why are we doing this? Why launch Future? It's a bunch of work. Why, why are we doing it? I'll let Mark start off and then I can join in. Oh, no, not a chance. Go okay. <laughs> nice dodge, Mark. Okay. Yep. Well, here's I guess I'll just start here. Like I, I love, and I think this is actually, well, I don't want to speak for Mark, but I think this is true of all of us in this room. I love all kinds of media. And this is everything from reading, you know, traditional media websites, Substacks. I even count TikTok and tweets in this, but nowhere in there is there like a really very curated, very high signal to noise, like single, God, there's like a, 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 a ambulance going outside my window. I don't know if you guys can hear it, but like a really high signal to noise go-to place, like a single go-to place. And not that people really go to websites anymore, but I want people to have that feeling they got when they were growing up or curious about tech or suddenly learned about something. And they used to get this really special feeling inside when Wired Magazine would show up in their mailbox and... I actually left Wired because I wanted to focus more on the leading versus the lagging indicators. I loved it, but I just felt like we had so much more of that at A6 and Z, given our vantage point on the front lines of tech and innovation, like what's coming, not just what's already been built. And finally, the other thing I would just say, and then definitely want to hear from Mark here, there is a huge unmet need out there. Like we saw this first with the podcast. Like I was actually a little surprised at how much the podcast took off. And it's very clear that people are 
hungry for a place to make sense of it all. And not just tech insiders. The podcast is huge. It has a global audience. And now we're really expanding that to future and beyond. Yeah, I, I agree with all that. I just add, like, look, there, there's just, there's so much going on. I mean, it, I, I totally agree with Sonal that, like, 1990s Wired was, like, you know, and, and for a while after that was, like, just, you know, it was it was this, like, amazing, like, glimpse into this world in which there were, you know, a lot of interesting things happening. And then, you know, now there's, like, I don't know, a thousand times the number of things happening or something. Like, the world has just, you know, the technology has just exploded in the world. And it's just, it's, it's, it's so huge and so important. And there's so many different facets. And, I mean, it's, you know, we feel it at our front. It's just a hurricane at our firm to try to keep up with all the new ideas and all the smart people. Um, and so to be able to really highlight a lot more of that, make it available and make sure that people can see it and understand it and wrap their heads around it and participate in it, um, you know, all over the world is, I, I think, just a, a really uh, a great opportunity. Yeah. And we don't have to fit it into one magazine. So we, yep. <laughs> we, we can yeah. fit the entire world in there, <laughs> um, which, which leads me to my next question. So this one is really for you since you are um, the keeper of our editorial voice. Thank you very much. Um, so for the MVP, like we're going to be building in public. This is just day one, if you will. But you had to make some choices. It's like, okay, what flavor do we want to share with the world as to how they should think about future and what to expect? How did you think about that? And how did you come to the choices that you ended up making? Yeah. Well, first of all, I just want to make sure I really share the thanks on that um, with the team, because obviously there's a lot more people are not up here, even in this room, who really helped make this happen. And so I just want to thank them. And especially also thank you to our contributors who so gangly and very collaboratively participated in our editing process. So more on that later. But basically, Margaret, to kind of answer that question, I mean, at the this is an MVP, as you notice. So we're going to be, you know, growing and evolving it, as, as you know. But at a high level, like, I wanted us to showcase a range beyond the typical kind of one-line, one-note, typical op-eds, because I really want people to know we're open for business. And that means that we're not, we don't have to follow like the old rules of, oh, this is what an op-ed has to look like, like, or a contributed article has to be this or that. So we have everything from argument pieces to discursive takes to analyses to narrative stuff, including the type of stuff you'd never typically see elsewhere, like pieces that go really deep on history or data. And just to give, you know, a couple of quick examples, like, you know, we had Patrick Collison, Tyler Cohen, and Patrick Sue shared like their like readout on fast grants, but it also is sort of a read on innovation and science, but nowhere else would they have been able to accept their own site, maybe put all this data and survey, like anywhere else they would have been asked to cut all that detail. Whereas we want that detail. I want it to be credible and deep. Another quick example is Bethel Kakar, her piece, you know, it takes a very long arc starting from like ancient evolution. And then on the other side of this, again, signaling this range, we have like Ryan Peterson talking about Ever Given and what that showed us. And whereas most of the coverage out there was really focused on the meme or, oh my God, this is broken infrastructure. He really brought it to a new level about what's the technology underlying story. Where are we going in the future here? So that's really the range. And then the other thing I would just add here, that's a super important thing to note for the, for the launch and probably true throughout is that we have a huge bias for makers or first principles, experts, or what I call close to the metal, bare metal insights. Nobody really does this today. I did it a little bit at Wired in my old section at Wired, but it's usually relegated to a side section and never front and center like it is here on Future. It's never It never focuses on first person. It's, it's usually diluted by reporting, so not as technically correct or thoughtful or nuanced. And not to say that there isn't a place for that, but here it's front and center. And by the way, I should also just mention for the room, for those that don't know, the URL is, you know, future.a6nz.com. So if you haven't gone there yet, do do be sure to check it out. But that's what I would say. And probably one more thing is that we cover 
both tech trends and company building, but also the pieces range from meta innovation to themes on infrastructure to creators and gaming and social, and you'll get a little bit of a flavor of that here. Mark, do you want to add to that? Well, so, so is that really the URL? No, I was, <laughs> was going to weigh in. We have we have the URL future.com, very importantly. Yeah. <laughs> We're just transitioning to preserve all the web juju, our, our juice. Um, but yes, future.com is coming your way. So uh, very, very important, uh, Mark. Thanks, thanks for adding that. Uh, <laughs> you, you bet. <laughs> yeah, we, we actually had to pay some money for it. So <laughs> I might think as well it's, use it. it's, yeah, we might as well use it. Good point, Chris. Um, so I can't help myself, Mark, this next one goes to you. But remember when you wrote, of course, you remember, it's time to build. And then I went and tried to place this with mainstream media and no one would take it. Um, because they're all wrong. And, and like we had already had this plan to build future.com, although it was not named. And but like that really confirmed for me it's like, fuck it, we need to have a place of our own where we can put this stuff. So you wrote Technology Saves the World, and we went like straight into future, like A16, the new site. So yeah. how was that received? And um, what, what made you write it? And what made you write it now? Yeah, so it's it's a you know we've I, I, it's a piece I've been assembling. So this is technology saves the world. So it's been a piece I've been kind of assembling the sort of points for the piece over the last like you know fifteen months. Um, I actually remember when Moderna first came out and it was in uh, in January twenty twenty and they basically had the vaccine and I don't think they announced it publicly, but like the, you know the word was they were making like very fast progress. Um, and I remember thinking like, boy, wouldn't it be amazing like if that actually worked? Um, you know, because we we knew you know people in biotech and we're, we're pretty active in biotech. Like we you know we knew the company and we knew what the the technology platform they had. And we knew how promising it was, but you know I, I don't think they had yet. Uh, they, I don't think they had yet actually released a uh, you know a, a, a drug based on it at, at that point. Uh, but it, you know we knew how revolutionary the technology was, and so it's like wow, like you know what if that works? Um, and then you know lo and behold it did. And then of course you know in March and April it was just this like spectacular thing where you know knowledge workers of all kind of stripes. We're able to go home and just continue, you know, just keep working, and all these, uh, you know, all these companies just kept kept operating, and then the kind of delivery economy kicked in, um, and you know, people all of a sudden who couldn't go to the grocery store or to you know restaurants all of a sudden could get food at home, and you know, our company Instacart was hiring like just absolute crazy to try to keep up, and it was actually working, and so you you could kind of see all these indicators, um, and then you know, my wife teaches at Stanford, and I, you know, she 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 cut over to online instruction basically in a week. Um, you know, with with basically, you know, in, in entirely by herself. And I was like, wow, like that actually works. Um, and so you could kind of see this pattern of like, wow, it's like, you know, just tech solving all of these like really fundamental issues in, in ways that really matter in people's lives. You know, of course, that was <laughs> that was not the right time to talk about any of this because, um, you know, the, the world was really suffering. And a lot of people were, you know, were, were really in a lot of trouble. But, um, you know, now that it turns out that like the vaccines really did work and that, you know, we're, we really are coming out the other side of this. Um, you know, it's, it's definitely time to kind of take stock of what happened. Um, and what happened is just, you know, tech, tech showed incredibly well. Like, it, it basically, this it, almost everything worked. Um, and so I think it's just, it's a great illustration of what our industry can really do and what all these, you know, amazing people who work at all these companies um, are actually able to do under pressure. Uh, and it really delivered. And so I, I think it's it's one of the kind of best good news stories, you know, of, of my life. Yeah, and, and I think what, what was so stunning to me is, like, I fully expected that we would have much, much bigger unemployment. So it's the disaster that didn't happen that doesn't really get talked about, but I think it's worth noting. We we didn't have the type of unemployment that I thought we would have because like we all stayed home like and we just kept on working. In fact, I thought I knew how to work hard and I've never worked harder than, oh, than God. now. So true. <laughs> well, we also just launched the thing. But that to me was shocking. Like 
what was your expectation, Mark, of like how the economy was going to do like going into the pandemic? Yeah, I was really I was really kind of rattled going in because because basically what happened was it was sort of a it was a it was sort of a it was a top down order right that sort of came out that was um, that basically it was a simultaneous shutdown of both the supply side and the demand side of the sides of the economy and what I mean by that is you know the, the the supply side shutdown is literally companies were told like literally like you know stop you know re retail retail stores close right in person you know uh, experiences of all kinds close um, you know the entire travel industry closes. Um, you know, every kind of production plant, car factories, you know, like all, all these things just like all of a sudden, you know, just like we're literally quite, you know, quite literally ordered to stop. Um, and then, you know, the demand side is like consumers were told, like, stay home, like, don't, don't do anything, don't go anywhere. Right. Um, and so it's sort of this simultaneous supply and demand kind of blow. And I think, you know, I, I think like, I, I think 20 years earlier, and by the way, like, you know, the stock, the stock market took this very seriously and like fell off a cliff, you know, kind of coincident with this, you know, really dropped like, you know, really hard, you know, going kind of going into this based on this theory and, it, you know, and, and then basically it's like 20, had this happened 20 years, it's just important to remember, had this happened 20 years ago, you know, we had the internet, but like not really, we didn't really have broadband, we didn't have smartphones, there's like a lot of stuff we didn't, you know, we didn't have video conferencing really, um, you know, not in the way that we do now. And so like, you know, even then the internet wasn't really kind of fully what it is today. And then 40 years ago, you know, this would have been, you know, quite literally, you know, <laughs> You know, 40 years ago, long distance phone calls cost like a dollar a minute, right? Like, <laughs> you know, gotta we forget, but like wow. it's all of a sudden not so easy to communicate, right? And so, had this had this happened 20 years ago or 40 years ago, and we and had we issued these kinds of lockdowns um, at that time, I, I think it would have been like completely economically catastrophic. And and you know, it's it's also important to like frame here, like whenever you talk about the economic catastrophe of a public health crisis like this, you know, there's always a risk that you sound like you know you sound kind of you sound like you're, you're being a little bit cold because it's like obviously the the big thing you know the big thing about a pandemic is just that you know the impact on people's health and well-being and families and you know all the people who died and all the people who got sick but you know the thing with the blow to the economy is like it it, it also affects everybody including everybody's health and well-being and it you know it affects the ability for people to be able to work and be able to provide for their families uh, and be able to get access to food and medicine and like all kinds of things and so like you know ec economic economic destruction is human destruction like they are they are it, it is the same thing. Like it, it has real world impact. And so this, this was shaping up to be very, very bad for many, many people. Um, and then, you know, like I said, and then, you know, look, it wasn't a uniform good news story. Like, you know, plenty of businesses did have to shut down. There's been a lot of wreckage in the small business sector of the economy that I think is still, you know, kind of really underestimated under, and underappreciated. It doesn't get a lot of headlines because these are small companies and they're not listed on the stock exchange. And they're not famous, but like, you know, there's been huge damage there. You know, and look, a lot of people have, you know, did, did lose their jobs and there's, you know, there, there was a lot of economic dislocation. Um, but it wasn't nearly as bad as it would have been 20 years ago or 40 years ago. And I, and I think that's where technology gets, you know, a huge amount of the credit. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, I'm running out of time. Sonal, I'll close with one uh, question. You mentioned that this is really a site for, for fellow builders, people who are in the arena. So if anybody has a good idea for future.com, I'm just teasing you. Um, how, how should they pitch us? Yeah. Well, so first of all, if you want to read the guidelines and there's also pitch forms to make it easier, they're at the bottom of future.com. You just scroll to the very bottom and it says pitch us, but just at a super high level, just so if people in the room know, because we really want your pitches. We want things that argue for a particular worldview, a tech trend or mindset that helps define what the future looks like. You know, what's hype, what's real, why does it matter? What's now, what's coming next? Where are we going? or something that gives practical advice for building or shaping the future. And that can also include like processes and operations and talent, all that stuff. But just at a values level, 
we, we like to go be above and beyond. Like this is meant to be differentiated. This is meant to be really high signal to noise. So like, for example, we don't just want the first take or the obvious take. Like what's the next turn on the topic? Like one of my favorite pieces in the set is a piece from Kai on community owned, you know, communities owning characters like IP, like Disney princesses. And so like, what's the nuance or twist? And all of them have in common what I call writer topic fit, which is, you know, WTF, which is all about that person has is either the expert or has some kind of earned expertise that they learned or gone through some kind of maze to figure out. So we want that. And then the other thing I would just say is I really hate what I call like cabinet of curiosities coverage of tech, where I love when we go into the weird and wonky, but I don't like it when technology is covered in this like othered way, which tends to happen a lot. And like, oh, look at those weirdos out there in Silicon Valley kind of thing. So we don't want that kind of thing. But anything interesting, fresh, smart, like give it to something. And if you don't have an answer, give us a framework. We want we want it. So again, just go to the bottom of the website and click on the pitch guidelines and uh, we will definitely take a look. All right. I think, Dallas, you have to take over. Otherwise, we're going to run out of time. We have these awesome, <laughs> awesome people on we have the some stage. Awesome people, so. and, and Sonal has kind of queued up and started to introduce one of them. I think the like bottom line there, Sonal, is like that you are open for business and taking pitches. And uh, for those of you in the room, you got like that you're the first to know. You can go directly to future.com, not future.a16z.com. So feel free to tell your friends or just keep that as something for those who uh, joined the launch party. Um, so I'm going to do a quick reset here because we have had a lot of people come in. Uh, but for those of you just joining, as the title suggests, this is the Future Launch Party, where we're celebrating the launch of our new site, Future or Future.com, uh, which aims to help builders and tech-curious folks kind of understand the future. Um, so up next, we have uh, Wes, Yost, and Kai, uh, who were three of our contributors. We kind of brought a different angle to the new creator economy. Um, and for this conversation, I want to introduce a couple other uh, A16Zers who are behind Future. So uh, Lauren Murrow, our consumer and fintech editor, um, and Zoran Basich, our crypto editor, as well as Chris Lyons, who I think worked uh, and helped with some of Kai's piece and heads up our cultural leadership fund. So uh, Lauren and Zoran, welcome. Hi, thanks, Das. Yeah, so we're excited to be here. Uh, I want to introduce... Uh, maybe the contributors, uh, and then we can dive into more on the pieces you wrote for Future. So we have Wes Cow, as Das mentioned. She's the co-founder of Maven, which is a platform for cohort-based courses. So she wrote a piece that's titled, In Online Ed, Content is No Longer King, Cohorts Are. So she argues that now that educational content is cheap and abundant on YouTube and blogs and newsletters, what's scarce in online ed is community. And that's led to the rise of what's called cohort-based courses, which are very different than the massive open online courses of the aughts, which we'll get into. Uh, then we have Yost Van Druen, who teaches at NYU Stern School of Business. He writes a newsletter on video games and interactive entertainment called Super Yost Playlist. And he wrote a post called The Creator Economy Comes for Gaming. And it's about how, though user-generated content has, of course, been around for decades, now players are discovering new ways to make money off their contributions through platforms like Roblox and Mythical Games and other avenues, and how game studios are kind of realizing the competitive benefit to harnessing those creators. So, and I'll let Zorin, my colleague, who, as we mentioned, is our crypto editor, I'll let you introduce Kai and the post you edited. Thanks, Lauren. Uh, yeah, pleased to welcome Kai, who Sonal mentioned a moment ago. Um, 
Uh, Kai is another person I met during the pandemic that I hope to meet in person soon. But um, he's the head of crypto at Visa, and he's a frequent writer on crypto. He's written about everything from, um, you know, crypto's role in the black digital renaissance, black economic empowerment. And he was an early writer, actually, on NFTs back in, I think, 2018, which is before NFTs were a buzzword. So I need to give him credit <laughs> for that. Um, but for us, he wrote an article called Fantasy Hollywood, Crypto and Community-Owned Characters. And it's kind of under this umbrella of new creator economies. And, uh, you know, Sonal and I loved the topic when we first talked about it with Kai. Um, so Kai, let's, if it's okay, let's start with you and just ask you to kind of quickly give us the big idea in your piece um, as it relates to creator economies, like what are community-owned characters and what was exciting to you about this idea and how, you, how did you sort of come to it? First, thank you for this opportunity. And, and I think the whole process, uh, learned a lot, was really collaborative. You know, you had so many different, uh, the piece that, that made it better. Uh, I think the okay, big sorry, idea I, is Kai, that- Is anybody else you know, having heard, issues with uh, with Kai's- Yeah, Kai, uh, your audio is really kind of wonky. And I would, yeah, I would hate for the audience to miss some of what you're saying. So I just want to see if we can get you into a better spot to, uh, and then maybe restart there. You want to try again? Here, let me- Perfect. Let me try. Is that better? Yes, that's much better. All right. Let let me try this. Well, well, thank you for having me. It's it's great to be here. And the the whole process was fantastic. I learned a lot, you know, just writing this. I I think the big idea is, you know, one of the best ways I found to learn about crypto is to just try and participate uh, and get into the ecosystem. And, And I kind of crossed this with NFTs where, you know, I started, you know, looking to collect NFTs, particularly... Uh, from, you know, underrepresented artists. And so, you know, I saw this kind of black crypto art movement that was emerging with amazingly talented artists and curators. Uh, And so I got to know uh, artists like Micah Johnson. Uh, And what I found is that, you know, NFT space had really moved from just one off, you know, let's drop one piece of art to how do you actually build a character and a community around that character? Uh, And so as a collector, I got to know, you know, the artists in Micah, I got to know, you know, other collectors who were involved and we started to work with Micah. And so it was just this super fun new model of, you know, how do NFTs have more utility when you can actually participate in the evolution of, of where the NFT goes. Uh, and so, you know, Micah is this creative genius uh, who created this character called Aku, who was inspired by, uh, experience he had where he heard his his nephew ask his mother, mom, can astronauts be black? And, you know, that really drove Micah to say, let's create a new character, uh, a character that has a positive representation that can inspire black children to believe uh, that they can achieve their dreams. And so it was an amazing mission and amazing art. And then there was this opportunity that you could contribute to it. And so it wasn't passive collecting uh, where you just buy it, you don't do anything. It's now you get to meet the artists, you get to participate in decisions that Micah makes. And it felt like this is a brand new model for media creation, and it could lower the barrier to entry for new characters that come into the world that the community can shape and the community can benefit from the, the, the growth and success of them. And so it's been really exciting and just fun uh, to, to get to know some of these creators and see a lot of the tools that have been pioneered in DeFi become more accessible when you're talking about art and culture uh, and characters that everyone has an opinion on, even if I may not be able to make any uh, any impact in a DAO that works with DeFi, 
I can help you know determine what a character, uh, what direction they can go, you know, with something like Aku. So it was yeah. really exciting to participate in that. And it's a great piece, and I encourage everyone to read it. And we do want to start talking about sort of the links between the three folks on our panel, some of which is like around historical IP um, and this idea of creator economy. So, Lauren, uh, I'll turn it over to you there. Yeah, I think that's a great springboard, actually, for Yoast. Your piece covers some of the same themes. You wrote a post, actually, on your personal newsletter late last year called The Feature is User-Generated, all about what you were seeing as kind of the evolution of user-generated content. And that's partially why... You know, I, I had read your writing and approached you for this piece, but how did this post kind of build and expand on that idea? That's a that's a really good question, and thank you. It's the um, it's sort of a a, a decade long inquiry for me personally, right? So I, I generally wear two hats, just to give you the, the background. Where I'm both an academic and an entrepreneur, and so we started the business ten years ago on microtransactions. You know, free to play before it was cool. Um, and I need a shout out for uh, Andrew, here, Andrew here too, because a lot of his thinking and writing informed that. Um, once you start making things smaller and more accessible to an average audience and you move away from this notion that there has to be some uh, grand designer, some Moses coming down the mountain with an idea of how things should be and open it up, um, you touch, you know, you get into this really interesting tension between you know, the people that consume the content and the, and the creators. And I think for, you know, to give a contemporary example, if you listen to the designers for, say, Fortnite, they think of this not as we build a product and then off you go, have fun with it. They think of it as a dialogue. And, and so you start to see all these avenues opening up in ways that uh, people start to relate to each other, start to contribute. They want to, you know, not just comment on it and, and discuss it and review it. They want to contribute to it. They want to be part of it. And so... This piece in particular for me was an opportunity to explore a little further how it hooks into the broader range of user-generated content in terms of platforms where people write, where they share music. And the utility that I think that video games uniquely provide is the fact that it's, it's, an, it's a playable experience where as a writer, and you know this probably yourself too, is like, you know, a text is a text. At the end of the day, once it's on there, once it's on the website, once it's in a book, uh, it ends up being, uh, you know, one static thing. Whereas with a game, it's really the other people and the, and the sort of elastic affordances of, of the space that make it uh, much more dynamic and give it a unique feel. So that's, that's some of what I try to explore by giving it some historic perspective as well as sort of an outlook into the future. Yeah, and you absolutely did that. I encourage everyone to go read his piece. It's great. Um, and in fact, that idea of a dialogue between creators and uh, builders is something that, Wes, you touch on in your piece as well, even though it seems as though online education would be a very different issue. Uh, it follows some of these themes. Of course, online ed is a very hot-button issue these days. There are a lot of opinions about what works and what doesn't. Uh, and it should be said that the massive the MOOCs, which are massive open online classes that were popular you know, in the past decade, have had dismal completion rates. So what is it about that community component that you write about that makes these cohort-based courses different and kind of the dialogue between instructors and fellow students? Yeah, definitely. Cohort-based courses are still a relatively new learning format. So it might be helpful to take a step back and define what they actually are. So the idea of a cohort-based course is really simple. It's a group of learners starting and ending a course together in the form of a cohort. 
uh, where there are clear start and end dates, and it's entirely geared around community, active learning, and hands-on participation, which means a lot higher engagement. So this is in contrast to the previous generation of online courses, MOOCs, which were basically passive content consumption, watching a series of videos, usually solo, you know, by yourself. Most of us have signed up for a Udemy course or a Skillshare course and watched a lecture and a half before uh, getting distracted and, and never you know, picking back up again. So uh, the exciting thing about core-based courses is that they're community-driven. So you're learning with a bunch of like-minded people who um, are passionate about a topic and learning together hands-on where you're discussing, you're debating, you're role-playing, you're critiquing each other's work, you're giving each other feedback. And the community component is so important because uh, you know, instead of a course where you're watching um, lectures about sales strategy, you're actually, you know, students in a core-based course actually go out and make the sale and then report back to their peers and reflect. Or instead of watching videos about color theory, if you're you know, taking a video course on graphic design, you actually would design a flyer and critique each other's work. So that community component, that accountability makes a huge difference uh, on the learner side. And it's also really exciting for the creator side, the instructor side, because it opens up a whole new monetization channel, especially for knowledge influencers. That's great. Thanks, Wes. And I know this monetization for creators and the power of community, that's something, Chris, that you've worked a lot about as well and written a lot about. Uh, can you speak to that and, and how that impacts your work? Yeah, no. So I think, you know, if you look at uh, the next generation of technology platforms and really, you know, where the future of the creator industry is coming, you're, you're starting to see both worlds really merging together, which is super exciting. And, you know, as more and more creatives are looking to advance their their careers, um, a lot of times that, you know, when it comes to products, whether it's companies like TikTok or, you know, even Clubhouse, for example, um, you know, the, the, they're spurring a brand new economy that's really going to really kind of comprise of the, the next generation of companies. And so, you know, for us and how we see the world, it, it's not just having our portfolio companies or either just or even just companies in general working uh, to help service the, the the creator, but actually having the creator actually be part of that process, um, whether it's through investments or partnerships or even, you know, collaborations with the founders. And so, you know, we really kind of have dialed in on this narrative in which we call share genius, where uh, we're having creators and, you know, entrepreneurs really come together to help reshape the future, but do it in a way that uh, is mutually beneficial and, and really help advance the ecosystem in itself. And, um, you know, especially as we see this, the next generation of technology companies continue to to expand and really develop into um, a more creator slash, you know, um, entrepreneurial friendly ecosystem. We want to make sure that we're kind of being that bridge between the best of both worlds so that, you know, the founders are creating applications that, uh, are really going to help empower the the creator community, which then in returns allows the creator community to to double down their resources and become twice as good with uh, whether it's from you know financing platforms like Stir, uh, you know even to you know Maven where uh, companies like Maven where now you can create your own course 
uh, and and really make generate you know incremental um, you know revenue uh, without having outside of your traditional job. And so um, it's really exciting just to see the evolution of you know technology and creators really coming hit 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 a forefront. And you know that's through through the CLF and also you know with with um, you know our, our portfolio. We're excited just to see the next chapter and, and where that can go. Chris, I know that uh, you've been thinking and working on these issues for a long time. And in fact, I know that you talked to Kai about a lot of these issues and in fact inspired uh, the piece that he wrote for us for future. I wonder if you could just quickly trace kind of your conversation with Kai uh, about creator economies and, and you know, in relation to crypto or otherwise, but how did you guys start talking about this? Yeah, I mean, Mike, it definitely was the the... Um, you know, the centerpiece that really started getting us together um, and where we thought that, hey, like, let's come together and really help empower the creator. And so uh, I remember you know, on a Sunday afternoon, um, we rallied uh, a clubhouse where it was almost like QVC for uh, Micah's first NFT, where we had, I think, you know, over 1,500 people in a clubhouse room and everybody was talking. This was the first time you know, you could actually buy a piece of art together collectively as a group and at the same time hear the story of an artist. And to me, I thought that, that and, and, you know, me and Kai and, and shout out to Kai for even, you know, being being one of the leaders of, of, of creating an ecosystem that really is kind of doing this on an everyday basis now. Um, but to me, I, thought, I just thought it was just incredible to, to know that, like, we can be a part of um, an artist's story, but also help empower the artist to get the story to, uh, expanded. And that's all based off of the internet and based off of software and different products. And so uh, I, I think that that was a model that, that really has inspired me. And now we've started to see you know, traditional artists as well start to say, okay, how can I get into the NFT world or get into the creative space or you know, thinking about alternative ways, even just on Clubhouse and using this as being able to uh, generate you know, new revenue streams and create shows and, and get signed by you know, major labels and, and institutions when traditionally you, know, you had to go run around and, and you know, do auditions and move to Los Angeles. Now you can run an entire corporation just from you know, the power of a smartphone, which is in your pocket. And so you know, me and Kai specifically are very focused on how crypto and culture can really come together. But I think it, you know, the creative economy is going to uh, apply to all angles. Yeah, I love how you're all thinking about these ideas from very different facets and how they, they kind of tie together in these bigger themes. Um, I could ask you all questions for the next hour, but I know we have a lot of people to bring up. So thank you so much, Wes, Yost, Kai, Chris, uh, for talking to us and for contributing to the site. Um, please go read their pieces on future.com and we'll pass it back to Das. Yes, I uh, second that going to watch uh, to read their pieces on future. I read all three and they were really fantastic and the connections are interesting. So uh, for only those three, who, Dust, did you only read those three or all of them? No, I, I don't think I've read everything yet on future, <laughs> but I have read every piece of everybody who is coming up on the show today. And I can attest that I found all I learned something from all of them. I was joking that I was taking like notes uh, throughout the day as I was doing that. So um for those of you just joining, uh, just it, this is uh, the future launch party for A16Z's new site, uh, future.com. Um, we were just talking about the new kind of creator economy with some of our contributors. And we're going to actually switch it up now uh, and talk with two other contributors about the ideas around kind of 
speculation and innovation and bubbles, which was kind of like another theme. I think on the site, we called it the capital flows theme. Uh, so with that, I'm going to uh, welcome, we have Bern Hobart, uh, who is uh, the kind of mastermind behind the popular Substack newsletter, The Diff. Uh, and Jamie Catherwood, who's an associate at O'Shaughnessy Asset Management and runs the Investor Amnesia website, and both were uh, contributors to the site. Um, and Zorin, I believe, is going to talk a little bit about them because uh, you were the main editor with these guys. So, Zorin. Thank you, Das. Um, yeah, thanks for being with us, Bern and Jamie. And um, it's interesting because I, I think there was something in the air because uh, a couple of months ago when we talked to both of you, you both had really interesting and different takes on kind of a, a similar topic. Um, so, Bern, I'll start with you. I remember you talking to us when we were talking about future, and, and you said you're interested in writing about bubbles, which is sort of the perfect pitch, right? Because everyone figures they know what bubbles are, but if you can express a different framework for thinking about them, uh, that's when you've really got something. So what was it about bubbles that excited you, uh, and what was it about like this sort of moment in tech or in the world that you thought made it worthwhile to talk about this topic? Yeah, so um, part of part of my view on bubbles is that they um, they obviously have these really apparent negative side effects. But part of what happens is that a lot of the history of bubbles is written after the fact. Um, two reasons for that: one is that you just have a much cleaner narrative when there were a bunch of people who were wildly overconfident, and perhaps some of them were even criminal, and um, they took a bunch of people's money, and then they lost all their money. Um, it's just, it's a better story. It has beginning, middle, and end. And the other reason bubbles get written about after the fact is that that's when people are not busy getting rich. So they actually have time to talk to writers and um, give their side of the story. And they want to give their side of the story because they they want a narrative out there where they were not the bad guys. Maybe they were naive, but they were not evil. So um, we get, like, a lot of the coverage of bubbles as bubbles comes from that kind of dynamic. And that means there's a lot of history and it's all looking backwards on something that didn't quite work out. But What's interesting about a lot of bubbles is that they actually create a bunch of durable infrastructure that continues to be valuable. And you can look at pretty much any bubble and then trace future economic developments that were only possible because people wildly overinvested in the bubble. Um, and this goes back to things like the the British railway bubbles of the, the 1830s and 1840s that actually gave Britain really good uh, railroad infrastructure and made them a manufacturing powerhouse after the fact. Um, you can even look at something like the housing bubble, which um, it you know not a super exciting bubble. Just we we built a bunch of houses in in places where people didn't really want to live, um, and uh, we paid way too much for those houses. But one of the things it did was it created this whole set of very standardized houses that had all been sold at the same time, which was just really good material for machine learning algorithms for iBuyers. So even though that bubble was probably a net wealth destroyer, it did have this positive side. I think the other interesting thing about bubbles is that they actually make the world a little bit more legible after the fact. Like there's just there's more to know. So um, the the bubbles, the the South Sea bubble, for example, actually ties into the development of uh, of longitude. Railway bubbles really created this reason for people to care about having accurate watches and clocks. Um, you didn't really have things that would happen at say 11:05 a.m. Um, in a pre-railroad environment, but once railroads existed, you had a lot of pretty precise time measurements. So um, that literally adds dimensions to the physical world, at least in a measurable sense. So I just I think bubbles are really powerful, and they're also powerful as coordination mechanisms that they tell a bunch of different people to each work on different parts of a problem. And um, 
sometimes if any one of those groups is working on part of their their part of the problem, the work they do doesn't create anything of value. But if everyone's working on all different facets, facets of the problem and they finish their work at once, it's sort of like having uh, an economic cluster in, in time rather than in space. So instead of all the tech companies convening in San Francisco, it's like all of the all of the internet companies convening in 1999 and saying, we're going to build this world where you can learn anything, watch anything, or shop for anything online. And if we all try to do it, it'll probably get done. So the title of your piece is Well-Behaved Bubbles Can Make History. So that implies that there's bubbles that are not well-behaved. Um, and this all sounds really interesting, but I mean, bubbles can cause destruction as well. So how does that fit into this framework and how do we think about sort of good bubbles versus bad bubbles? Or is that like too, you know, too simplistic a framework? Um, it, you always have to simplify. Like the more, the more you're talking about really historically significant events, the more your sample size is really tiny and um, the more each of them has enough weird stuff going on that it's hard to actually generalize across them. But I would say the the thing that sets apart good bubbles and bad bubbles from bad bubbles is that good bubbles are about extrapolating to a different and better future. And bad bubbles are really just about being more and more confident that the recent past is a good guide to the the future and that basically things won't change. So like compare the housing bubble to the dot-com bubble. Dot-com bubble was based on the idea that we'll be buying everything online and it'll change communications and change the world. And um, a lot of that has subsequently happened. The the real estate bubble is really just based on people looking back at a bunch of real estate data and saying housing prices tend to go up over time. And it tends to be the case that if they are down in one place, they're up somewhere else. So we can afford to use a bit more leverage and um, more people should own houses, et cetera. So like, this is all just really backwards looking. It's not saying something really interesting about the future. It's actually saying something incredibly boring about the future. Like the future is just the present, but um, with uh, higher housing starts and faster home price appreciation and more complicated financial products. So I think that's really the dividing line. I want to make sure we get to Jamie, but first I want to ask you to just quickly talk about bubbles as a form of science fiction, which I thought was a really interesting part of your piece. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I think science fiction is just a really powerful guide to the future. Um, doesn't always come true, but it often inspires people. Um, I forget which of the which of the Manhattan Project scientists was actually inspired by reading H.G. Wells. And um, Wells was actually writing, he was inspired by a piece on space travel, but he decided the only thing he could really do, because he wasn't that smart, the only thing he could really do was um, find a way to split the atom and use that to create cheap, abundant power for everybody. So he settled for that. But um, a lot of science fiction, it part of what science fiction authors do, um, at least hard science fiction authors, is that they say, we're going to um, we're going to hold a lot of aspects of the human condition pretty constant. We're going to hold a lot of the rules constant. And then we're going to imagine that there's one invention or a set of inventions, or maybe we're just going to roll time forward by 10 or 20 or 500 years. And we're going to imagine a world that actually makes a lot of sense given all these changes. And that's really what you're doing if you're starting a company based on some technology that is is not quite there yet, but could be there in the future. Like, um, And this is why I looked at things like the iPhone in the piece, where the iPhone, it wasn't a bubble in the sense that Apple stock um, was was going up to insane heights just because everyone was really hyped about iPhones or uh, smartphones in 2006. It was sort of a bubble in the sense that a lot of the technology, it would have been cool if it were working, and um, it wasn't there yet. And a lot of the early demos were really, really clunky. There were just a ton of technical problems to solve. And then they also had to solve the business problem of, do people actually want this? Um, do they want the version that we can make in 2007? And if so, how do we get it to people? And how do we sell it at a reasonable price? So um, Apple invested, um, I think we could say, an irrational amount of money um, circa circa the mid-2000s in this, just in the sense that there were other companies that could have pursued 
something similar and did not end up producing an iPhone. So um, it does have that kind of bubble-like dynamic, but it is like a lot of the appeal of the iPhone originally was just that it is this futuristic device. It feels like something out of Star Trek. It gets you to a more Star Trek-like existence, and Star Trek is... Um, I, hopefully some form of utopia. So um, anytime you can get things to converge on a utopia that follows some some reasonable rules of, of fiction, but also reasonable rules of um, physics, or at least like internally consistent rules, um, then, then you are probably making the world a better place. So that's that's the science fiction to, to bubble tie-in. And it, again, applies much more strongly to the good bubbles where people are trying to do something different that changes the world versus the bad bubbles where people are trying to do a lot more of the same thing to make the world uh, a little bit more like it already is. Everyone, please read Burns' piece. It's really thoughtful and thought-provoking. It's, it's a great take on the subject. Um, Jamie, in your, you wrote about speculation, and you, you used kind of the example, in fact, of the, the British, uh, the, or the, rather the, the railway bubble, which Byrne uh, referenced as kind of a, a way to illustrate that. And on your Investor Amnesia blog, you write a lot about sort of historical context and the way it relates to modern uh, capitalist society and, and different frameworks for thinking about it. So um, you talk about speculation being human nature. What do you mean by that? And how does that fit into this idea of bubbles? Yeah, so first of all, I just want to say that it must have been funny for you to be editing both of our kind of pieces simultaneously because <laughs> upon reading Burns, it's crazy how similar we were thinking about a lot of these uh, topics. As I said, there's something in the air. I don't know what it was, but something was in the air. Yeah, it cracked us up, so we laughed hard about it. <laughs> um, but yeah, to your point, so one of the lines that my boss, Jim O'Shaughnessy, always says is that um, human nature is the last sustainable edge because kind of markets change, technology changes, but human nature and our kind of um, predilection to succumb to speculation and getting swept up by exciting narratives and flashy, exciting new technologies is something that's been around since the 17th century. Um, at the beginning of my piece, I gave a quote that describes the human behavior of a speculator who's watching the price of um, East India Company stock plummet. And he describes the speculator as having almost two bodies fighting each other because he knows in his kind of rational mind that he should act one way, but the kind of inner speculative urge are pushing him another direction. And it's like watching one person with two minds battle each other, kind of like devil and angel on each shoulder. And so the point of my piece is kind of if we know that over 400 something years, there's always going to be boom and bust cycles and speculative manias because it's been 400 years and we haven't really gotten much better at kind of staving off these tendencies, then we should probably focus more on as a society on how do we channel that speculative nature into a more productive venture that can benefit society as a whole. So I used the American, but British would have been just as suitable. I used the American railway boom um, in the 19th century to show how the government, through providing federal land grants and other subsidies to railroad corporations, which incentivized kind of private investment and marked a good relationship between public and private enterprise, they were able to induce private investment to a point where we had the transcontinental railroad and I can't remember the, all the stats, but it was like 80,000 miles by 1860, I believe, of railroad track had been laid, whereas in the 1840s, that figure was something like 2,000. So just this remarkable level of growth. And there was rampant speculation. I mean, there was probably five or six financial panics in a 
40-year period that were all somehow directly linked to railroads. And so there's no shortage of speculation, but that speculation was helping fund these new companies that were forming to lay track and build America's um, railway infrastructure, which had huge economic benefits for our, our nation. And so the point of the piece was kind of how do we decide what those projects are today and how do we set ourselves up for success by kind of removing the barriers that prohibit that level of speculation in productive enterprises today. Um, because at that time, it was very easy for everybody to get involved as a small investor in this kind of national railway endeavor. I think you might be on mute, Soren. Thank you, Sonal. Um, thank you, Jamie. So the title of your piece is Specula Speculation is Necessary, Governments Can Help. Um, so just as we wrap up here, what's kind of, you know, the implication of this for what we should be thinking about now in terms of taking this part of human nature speculation and channeling it to more productive uses uh, while be kind of acknowledging the, the destructive aspects that it can have? Like, how do we think about that and what should governments be doing? So one of the things I proposed in the piece um, and kind of cheated by not giving a specific solution because I'm certainly not the person to come up with that complex uh, solution is reviewing things like the accreditor, accredited investor rule, where one of the things that enabled the railway boom in the 19th century is the average kind of small retail speculator could get involved. And that's what helped build this kind of national you know, zeitgeist and moment where everybody was seeing money being made in railway shares and they got involved and it kind of helped fuel this whole boom and construction of the railway infrastructure. But today, that is a little harder to do because a lot of the um, rules, a lot of the creditor invested status rules prevent kind of the average person from getting involved. And so one of the issues with initiatives like Opportunity Zones and other um, kind of plans like that, which aim to bring economic benefits to lower income communities or underserved areas of the country is that a lot of those initiatives are restricted to accredited investors. And so one of the kind of first places I think to look is how do we kind of get rid of those rules or make them more flexible in a way that won't kind of just lead to an abundance of fraud and speculators getting cheated, but can still kind of enable that national widespread momentum like was experienced in the 19th century railway boom. Awesome. Well, I want to thank both of you guys, Bern Hobart and Jamie Catherwood. Both wrote tremendous pieces for Future. Uh, you can see it on the site. Um, and thanks so, so much good. for being with us today. And thanks for writing. Thank you, you guys. So good. We loved your pieces. Uh, just one note for those in the room. Actually, our managing editor, Amelia Salyers, is the one when we were going through the initial theme lineup who reminded me like, hey, we're not really covering capital flows. Like we have a little bit of a gap there. And it's interesting because I think a lot of people you know, may not always necessarily intuitively get why the capital flows theme matters because the whole point of future is innovation. And that's exactly the point. It's like, it's not just about like the numbers of speculation, as you've heard from both Jamie and Byrne, but it's about innovation is capital flows. And that's actually the point. So I just want to make sure that people kind of hear that because when I first came to A6 and Z and I was doing like weird wonky finance type topics, I was like, this is so freaking boring. And then I realized, oh, wait a minute, this is actually super interesting and here's why it matters. So that's also part of what you'll also see in that section. Awesome. Um, well, that's that's kind of the uh, the capital flows segment then. And I think one of the coolest things about this launch party is that we get to kind of showcase the breadth of 
different topics that we've covered uh, on future. And so up next, we actually have uh, two contributors with one of like my personal favorite topics, which is kind of the our hybrid future of work, how like how and where we're going to work is changing. So I want to uh, introduce and, and welcome up here uh, Rajiv Iyengar, who's the CEO and co-founder of Tandem and who wrote the piece Hybrid Anxiety and Hybrid Optimism, the Near Future of Work, and Nicole Forsgren, who's the VP of Research and Strategy at GitHub and who wrote the piece on workplace productivity. Um, and so welcome, Rajiv. Welcome, Nicole. Thanks. Great to be here. Uh, Thanks. Hi, everyone. Hey. Um, so, you know, across both of your pieces, um, there was this theme that, like, we're kind of moving from the industrial to the information age, but that our work models haven't quite caught up. Um, and that, and it's kind of this bigger meta theme that I think we've heard a lot about at A16Z, which is like COVID really hasn't created net new trends, but it's really accelerated trends that were already underway, including this kind of shift in how we work. Um, and so, you know, one of my favorite quotes around this, I think it was from like Chris Hurd at first base is that like the new ways of working aren't going to mimic the old office so much as come up with these like net new ways of working. So kind of providing that as a frame, I'd love to have you guys lay out some of what in your pieces were the new ways you think we're starting to work and measure how we work. Uh, Rajiv, do you want to kick off for me here? Sure. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, it's def I, I definitely agree that the new ways won't mimic the old office or or uh, they won't be as, you know, prog progress tends to start with a kind of a skeuomorphic approach. Like, let's literally translate the old office to the new way of working. But then very quickly, and we, we've started to see that acceleration through COVID, like, you look for new and better ways to work. And I think one big example that I go deep into in the post is is multiplayer apps, where uh, you know we solve the problem of how do we work in different locations uh, in a similar way to you solve the problem of how do you play a game with friends in different locations, and things like Figma, you know, Google Docs, Notion are, are all making work multiplayer and dynamic in a way that wasn't really possible before, and actually. It, going back to Chris's point that new ways won't mimic the old office, this is one of the ways in which in-office work is starting to resemble or, or, or be inspired by distributed work, where when you're in an office, often you're still using these multiplayer apps like Figma. Uh, and uh, there, there's a kind of an interesting interplay there. And Nicole, how about you? Because I mean, your piece really kind of dived into how I think the old ways of measuring our work really don't cut it anymore. Uh, can you tell a little bit more about kind of your piece and, and the thesis there? Sure. And and I love what you mentioned up front about how, you know, the pandemic didn't necessarily change what we were doing. It sort of accelerated it. And there was this this great poll that hit Twitter. And, and it was like, you know, who initiated your transformation? Was it the CIO? Was it the CTO? Or was it COVID-19? Right. And that's what we saw a lot of companies doing is they just sped up what they were already doing. Right. They had to catch up quickly. And so... You know, when we think about that, you know, what, what Rajiv just kind of talked about is that, you know, we're, we're doing this collaborative, this multiplayer work. And so when we think about measuring our work and measuring, you know, finger quotes, productivity, what does that mean? And unfortunately, too many companies or too many people or managers, you know, whatever position you're in, we're stuck in this old mode of what does this mean to be productive? And, and if it means output or a, a 
bit or a widget or a thing that doesn't really capture this knowledge economy, this information economy, this digital economy of what it is that we make now, because we're doing many more complex things where now more doesn't mean better necessarily, right? Because when we think about things like pictures, you know, back in the day, more pictures were producing more, right? This was contributing to something like GDP. Whereas now, you know, we're all on phones and we can take as many pictures as we want for free. And the picture isn't the good. The picture contributes to the good. We're training machine learning models. We're, you know, allowing doctors to diagnose people, you know, sooner, more quickly, with more accuracy with this. And so we need to rethink what it means to be predictive. It needs to be this holistic measure that includes many different dimensions instead of just a basic count. I I love that. I mean, I think there's a lot we're going to be, I wish we had more time to unpack, but I to go to kind of the next thing, I want to quote something in Rajiv's piece and kind of see uh, if you can explain on it. Because one of the things you said is, you know, in the future, every company will be remote, um, which is kind of interesting because your your piece is actually about hybrid. So I want to see if you could explain, you know, what do you mean there by every company will be remote? And then how far away are we from that in your mind? Yeah, I I think that, you know, even even before the pandemic, if you look at uh, let's let's think broadly about distributed teams as not everybody's in the office all the time, uh, it, kind of drawing a big category around remote, very all the various forms of hybrid. Uh, every company, when it reached a certain scale, started resembling a distributed company. You, you know, you have multiple offices or teams will be split across different offices or different cities or even different offices within a campus. And then inevitably, somebody on the team is traveling or working from home. And you know, add that to the uh, economic pressure that was causing more and more companies to embrace you know, fully remote teams. Uh, every company had some element of you know, distributed work at scale. And so I think the, the, the more interesting thing is to see how um, the number of options and flavors and uh, different variants of distributed work have increased. And so like, as we come back to what's our hybrid future, uh, where there used to be a few options, now there is spectra. Uh, and, and that's, I think, part of the complexity of figuring out like, what is the, what is the right flavor of hybrid work for your team, company, organization, industry, functional group? So Nicole, you're, you know, you're at GitHub, which is like obviously one of the, the pioneers of kind of distributed remote work. Um, so I'm wondering, like, do you agree or disagree with this idea that like in the future, every company will be remote? You know, I, I'm going to say I, I disagree. Right. But because oh, we, lo- we love a good disagreement. So <laughs> I, I think it's because there are going to be things that are contextually appropriate for the work that we do, for the teams that we're on, um, for the, for the goal that we're working towards and even for the timelines that we have and for the stage of work that we're in, right? There are certain types of things, certain types of brainstorming where it's easier and where it's faster for us to get together, right? Like I still mourn the loss of my whiteboard and my teams, right? Um, 
And, and then there are, there are times where I just need to be kind of alone and focused. And we know that there are, there are many times, and there's lots of research showing that, that developers and creatives do particularly well with bursty work, right? Where we can focus for a time and then come up for a time, whether that's individual or like uh, in, I, I, I want to say isolation, right? Where we've been working alone or we're together in an office or even an open space with isolated spaces. We also know that productivity is personal. Some people will always work better with others around. Some people will always work better alone. And then we'll kind of go through phases, right? So when I even think about um, the different types of work that I do, some things I do better alone. Some things I do better with a group. Some things are better um, in a in a collaborative process, right? Like when I when I think about um, you know my you know how I worked on on this piece in particular, right? The editorial process and how you know many types of work that I do I do alone, but but when we think about you know measuring things and improving things, what does it look like when we have other people shape a piece and how do we do it? collaboratively or how do we do it, you know, to work toward a finish line, right? Like I didn't necessarily need to be in a room with the editorial team, but it, it got, I will say exponentially better by having the editorial team help me and we could do it in handoffs, right? We could do it in, in process, but, but the brainstorm was definitely collaborative, but I have larger projects. Like when I'm doing architectural pieces, I, I just need a whiteboard. Yeah. I'd actually second that. I, I, would agree with uh, the way Nicole broke it down. There's, you know, uh, every company is remote. I, I don't think it it makes sense to think about every company as being completely remote as a desirable future. Um, every company having some element of remote work, I think that's that's highly likely. But look, uh, you know, offices are great for especially for certain types of work, certain types of teams, some of the time, and. We love talking with each other, and there, there's certain types of. Uh, um, what, one of the things I talk about a little bit is the distinction between interpersonal bandwidth or relational bandwidth when you're talking versus collaborative bandwidth, and it's much easier to kind of have a high bandwidth collaboration virtually than have a really you know uh, close connection virtually. Uh, so I, I think there's always a place for the office, and yeah, I mean. Thinking about the editorial process, that was a great example of uh, you, there were lots of bursts of coordination, lots of like in-person brainstorms to figure out like how to shape the narratives, how to fit all of these thoughts that were at the beginning of the process in my head pretty disorganized into something that's that's organized. Uh, but at the same time, there had to be periods of deep independent work. Uh, and I think a lot of work is like that. It has these mix, this mix of things that you need. I love that. And I think that you have absolutely made the day of the editors on this call uh, and like making it like a true <laughs> launch party. So like for those of you who are like at your 5 p.m. and have like a glass of champagne, yeah. beer, kombucha, whatever it might be, like that's your moment to like toast the uh, the exponentially better with editing. So Rajiv and Nicole, uh, thank you so much for joining. I I have so many more questions for you, but I think we will just have to get you back as well as a number of these other contributors for a longer conversation. Because as we kind of promised, this is sort of the snack 
and, and bite-sized version of a lot of these. Uh, sort of a, an amuse-bouche to get people to go and check out your yeah. pieces. So Rajiv had uh, hybrid anxiety and hybrid optimism, the near future of work on Future. And Nicole Forsgren uh, had on workplace productivity. You can find both of those on Future.com. Uh, and so with that, we're, we're kind of getting ready to move into uh, – uh, one of our final conversations and Sonal. Thus, uh, yeah, I was going to just yeah. jump in and say just one thing on the editing process. First of all, I really want to thank also personally, Rajiv and Nicole. They were both two of my editees on this. I mean, I edited all of them in, in addition with the editors, but um, they were really so collaborative. And I just want to make a note about this for a moment, because when we talked earlier on about pitching us, one of the things that really struck me by surprise is how many people were eager to do this because they don't actually get that opportunity. So one of the things that, you know, Kai was saying earlier that he learned a lot so much through the process. I do think it's really good for people in the room to know that one of the big benefits of contributing with us and even, you know, because in this day and age, everyone has options to publish everywhere, which is great. It's an explosion of exciting things, but you will get a very differentiated take and a collaborator and sometimes more than one, sometimes one. And I just want you guys to know that because that's part of the opportunity of future and, and pitching us. So just make sure to go to that URL at, I'm going to do the plug future.a6z.com future.com and go to the bottom to pitch us. I just want to make, remind that. And thank you, you guys. I love that. I I mean, it, is, it is a launch party. <laughs> Virginia, yeah. What were you going to say? I just want to quickly double up on that and say thank you, Lauren, and thank you, Sonal, for, for the help. There, the transformation in the piece from the beginning to end was just huge. I can't overstate that. And for me, as a learning process, I have so many notes on the process itself. It was, it was really, really exciting to work on. So thank you both. Oh, thanks, Rajiv. Uh, really, really appreciate that. And with that, I, I want to kind of welcome uh, two other people. Um, Vijay, who has been uh, kind of uh, patient here, I think, in waiting. So Vijay, huge, huge thank you uh, and welcome to the launch party. Um, and then we have Lighty Klotz. Uh, welcome, Lighty, who is so game about technology uh, <laughs> that they actually are jumping into their first ever uh, Clubhouse conversation. I love it. Um, yeah, so and the welcome. reason Vijay had to wait, so I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. It's Good all the you. wonders of being live. So, um, And with that, I want to welcome one more yeah. person who yeah. has also been calmly waiting yeah. on stage and is uh, our bio editor extraordinaire, uh, Lauren Richardson. Um, so Lauren, welcome and congratulations on the launch. Great. Thanks, Doss. Uh, yeah, I'm really excited to be here. Happy to be joined uh, by two of my editees. Uh, Lighty is a professor at the University of Virginia, director of the Convergent Behavioral Science Initiative, and the author of the new book, Subtract, The Untapped Science of Less. And of course, VJ is an A16Z general partner who was previously a professor at Stanford and founder of Folding at Home Distributed Computing Project amongst many other accolades. And uh, both Lighty and Vijay's pieces really weren't about biology or healthcare per se, but rather the complexity of our world and what we can do to make sense of it. Sort of, uh, you know, putting the beyond in the bio and beyond uh, title name. Uh, so Lighty's piece discusses uh, new research and understanding into the biases that people have when solving problems. And Vijay's is about how AI needs to evolve to truly be able to address the core problems of bio and healthcare. 
Uh, so, Lighty, uh, <laughs> since you're here, your game, you're you're on the stage now. Let's start with you. Uh, can you describe the thesis of your piece and how it relates to this idea of uh, resolving complexity? Sure. Um, I, the the thesis of my piece is that um, well, the research that I talk about in the book is that this finding that people systematically overlook subtraction as a way to to make things better. And there's a lot of fancy research that, that goes into that, but I mean, I think it kind of also rings true. And one of the, um, the thesis of the piece is that this also presents an opportunity, right? So if the, if the situation in which we um, overlook subtraction is whenever we're trying to change things from how they are to how we want them to be, then that means that there's kind of untapped potential for people who don't overlook it. Um, and, you know, we've studied this in all kinds of different contexts from, um, well, grids on a computer screen to, to recipes to Lego structures. But since this is a, we're talking about editing, I mean, we also studied it in words and how even despite all of our, us learning about strunk in white and, you know, omit needless words, um, we still need editors to help us subtract. So the thesis of the piece is as we're, as the world is becoming more and more complex, um, there's also advantages to taking away. And I point out some of the some of the people that have done that, but the the main thing is not a prescription of what to take away. It's a, here's here's what's happening in our thought process, and you all are smart people as readers. Um, and now that you know what's happening in our thought process, you can kind of like change that for yourself and also tap into these subtractions that may not have um, happened in the industries that you care about. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've been really fascinated by your research and, you know, thinking about it in the context of editing. You know, I, I edit your, your written work where I can add and subtract, but I also edit podcasts where you can only subtract. You can't, you can't add to a podcast after it's been recorded. And I've really appreciated um, like that, that kind of single facet. Of, uh, of problem solving. So what, do you, what would you say one of the biggest misconceptions is when it comes to your work about subtraction versus addition? Yeah, that's a perfect one right there, is that um, just, oh, Lighty, he thinks we should subtract everything. <laughs> I was doing an interview <laughs> yesterday, and they kept saying, well, what's so great about subtraction? Why do you have to... Why do you have to do it? Why is it better? And I, you know, I answered it three different ways that you know, the, I'm not saying it's better. I'm saying it's overlooked, and I'm agnostic on whether we should add or subtract. But this this misconception that it's an either or, and there's you know there's good psychological reason for that. I mean, there's this long history of you know, of making scientific advances by positioning things as opposites, right? Um, and that that works really well if you can say, um, hey, if this thing is true, then this other thing is not. But it doesn't work when the things aren't actually in opposition. And as we're talking about them, adding and subtracting are not opposites. They're complementary ways to make change. And so, you know, if we can get past that misconception of, um, you know, add or subtract, I think that would go a long way towards helping us subtract more. Um, because then when we think of adding as a way to make something better, it also bring to mind subtracting <laughs> as, mm -hmm. a, as a complementary way to make things better. Right. Uh, yeah, I completely agree. So, Vijay, uh, let's shift to your piece, uh, which, you know, we gave the kind of surprising headline or uh, uh, counterintuitive headline of AI is too dumb, you know, for now. 
So uh, maybe this is a false dichotomy that we've set up of AI being, you know, too smart or too dumb. What did what did uh, what did you mean when you want, or what was the intention when you set out to write this piece? Yeah, you know, I think we all are sort of confronted with some really amazing things in AI. Uh, especially living in the Bay Area, you see like self-driving cars. Uh, you see all the amazing things in terms of photo recognition stuff that would be, you know, we almost like take for granted, but seems magical. But you know, I, I think what where the real big wins are going to be, especially in sort of biology and healthcare, like designing drugs, helping doctors with healthcare. These are areas where training AI in the way we're doing it today, like to recognize images or even to drive cars, is really going to be very limited in that in the bio and healthcare domains. And and I think the real missing opportunity, and where I kind of want to shine the bat signal at, is that we need to actually take AI to school. AI's got to learn the domain, and that uh, we hopefully can uh, energize a new crop of people that are at the intersection between uh, bio and technology, bio and, and, and machine learning, to realize that we can have it both ways. We can use some aspects of traditional algorithms, but that we can still bring them to school, maybe give them an M the equivalent MD, maybe the equivalent of PhD, get them up to speed so that they can make the really big contributions. What do you think some of the biggest uh, implications that, you know, smarter AI, AI with domain expertise will have, you know, not just in terms of being able to solve problems, but in terms of like how companies are run and um, and founded? Yeah, I think one of the, the, there are all these technical challenges that we could talk about. There's computer science technical challenges then there's sort of integrating computer science and biology. And those challenges, you know, there's technical aspects of it, and, and we could go there. But I think what you're getting at, I think, is uh, really the reality that there may be cultural shifts that are going to be maybe as difficult or maybe even more difficult than the technical ones. Shifts where uh, biology companies will really have to start thinking about themselves as AI companies first. And to be thinking about not just training people, but training machines, training machines to be able to work in this new domain. Uh, that shift is not going to be something where I think the AI people are in some other room doing things by themselves. It's where they are interspersed throughout the whole company. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to ask both of you, you know, this uh, this package, or this our website, it's all about the future. You know, how do you see, you know, AI and, you know, this, uh, you know, uh, value and subtraction contributing to problem solving in the future, you know, as we as we face new and more difficult challenges? Uh, Lighty, why don't we start with you? DJ unmuted if he wants to go first. Uh, oh, I'm wow, you already know Clubhouse, uh, Clubhouse uh, <laughs> etiquette. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah, yeah I you know, I mean, Eddie's very observant there. Uh, uh, so, you know, I, th this is all about the future. I think the future that we're describing is uh, maybe a 10 or 20-year arc where we go from you know, maybe a couple of drugs have AI being a key part of their design today uh, to maybe 10 or 20 years, maybe 95% of all drugs are done uh, this way. I, we've seen this transition in other industries. You know, 20 years ago, it was kind of crazy to say computers will be doing finance and trading on Wall Street, and now they dominate that discipline. Uh, so it's the future here, the future opportunity is seeing this major shift. Uh, and uh, I think what I tried to lay out was where that next step in that future should be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Awesome. This was, uh, you oh, know, Lauren, let, uh, let yeah. Lady answer first. 
<laughs> oh, yeah. sorry, Lighty. I did like, not mean to jump. See, you've got I better unmuted. clubhouse etiquette than I do. And... I know. I unmuted and everything. Um, yeah, no, I think the uh, similar, though, to the, you know, kind of interspersing the machine learning AI people throughout the organizations. I think, you know, it's less about subtracting and more about kind of like behavioral science as something that is interspersed throughout organizations. I mean, there's a lot of new knowledge there and so much of the attention is being focused on like hey here's how you can you know use behavioral science to make your personal life better and not very much of looking at how you can use behavioral science to kind of change the world for the better um mm -hmm. and change change big systems and uh i think that is where you kind of organizing it more in or integrating it more into organizations but also you know what I like about the subtracting research is that it's this very fundamental, you know, design activity, changing something from how things are to how we want them to be. And I think if we can think about behavioral science of design a bit more, that would be something that could um, could move things forward really quickly and uh, and be helpful in the in the future for organizations. Uh, awesome. I, Lauren, I noticed you are still off of mute. Was there any final Oh, sorry. No, there? I forgot the etiquette. Sorry. <laughs> That's all right. Everybody is, is like a clubhouse master. Go ahead, I was just going to say, like, I love that Lighty's talking about subtract. I just, I literally just realized this, that the theme of subtract versus add, it actually applies to our homepage because we're being extremely curatorial. Because again, if you go back to this idea of signal to noise, like someone actually on Twitter was like, oh, well, how will we sift through signal to noise or will you do this? And I was kind of like, the whole point is the whole homepage will always be curated. We'll never put stuff on there that isn't quality. So for me, like that is an example of subtracting versus adding. We actually killed and did not run a lot of things in order to, to make the things good. Yeah, your uh, your your information design on the homepage is amazing too. I mean, like the one of the stories I talk about in the book is Edward Tufte, who's you know this kind of guru of information design, and his his rate his one of his main tips is to maximize your information to ink ratio, and your 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 site is a beautiful example of that. It's really well. That is a testament, Marty. You should speak to that. I was going to say, Lady, thank you so much for saying that. We there were so many conversations about information density and like how yep. to. How, because when you're working with designers, and by the way, our design firm and our designers are both, they're all fantastic, but people tend to want to design when you're talking about design. So just stripping it and stripping it and stripping it and making it beautiful yet information dense was uh, a tricky bit. So thank you for noticing. Yeah, you've gotten to one of the, another concept I talk about in the book is noticeable less. So the idea that you've stripped away so Ooh. much that now you're now you're now it's noticeable. People have noticed your your design. Love it. Um, we like should have had you in the room, Lady. Would have been so much uh, No, you you got it. You didn't need me. <laughs> Subtract me. Yeah. Shout out to Jared and Amelia too. They're they were really key key key, and so many more people. Jared, Greg, Amelia, Laura, Greg, Kodo, awesome Laura. People. Yeah, so many people. Just want to make sure we they're not in the room like on the stage, but yeah. Uh, I love that. Like a huge, a huge thanks to I think everybody. I know this has been like a, a only the beginning, but a monumental uh, kind of lift to to get here, and really, really awesome to see. And so I think, you know, with that, I want to thank everybody for for joining the the kind of future launch party here. This is just the beginning. The team has some amazing things planned, um, and will you know, in the spirit of building, we will keep building, keep iterating. Um, and if you have, uh, if you haven't yet, go to future.com and check it out. And if you have ideas, the team is open and interested in pitches. 
Um, and so with that, I am going to going to close the room. Thanks, everybody. And have a good night. Thank you, guys. Thanks, guys. Congratulations. Thank awesome job. Have a good night, everybody. Thanks, Dust. Bye.